Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a broadcaster and author, but for the purposes of this podcast, I am your chief investigator. I'm going to analyse paintings, pull apart sculptures and really cross the mediums in order to bring you the best art historical detective work. I will be looking at a different image every week and the clever people at History Hit have embedded the image into the podcast. So if you click on the link, you should be able to get a high resolution version of it up or you can type the title of the work into your search engine and that way you have it in front of you while we walk around and talk about it. And in fact, we are walking around today. We are in the gallery. So the sound of this podcast is slightly different. We're in the Tate, Tate Britain in London. And I am joined by my friend, my uh, um, fellow broadcaster, columnist, art lover, Alistair Sook. How are you, Alistair? Well, I, I, I'm all the best for that wonderful introduction. Thanks, Nina. It's, uh, I'm very well and, um, and really pleased to be here actually out at Tate Britain inside the gallery looking at what we're going to talk about. So what piece are we going to look at today then? We're going to look at a sculpture that dates from the 60s and it's called Early One Morning, which I think is a fantastic title by the way, um, and it's by a British artist called Anthony Caro. Right, and we're going to move out of this glorious atrium area here into the 1960s rooms of the Tate. We're going into the 60s gallery now and I, I always love coming to look at this gallery when I'm here, not just because it has early one morning. There's a, a work of art right next to it which many people will be um, uh, familiar with. It's a big painting by David Hockney mm. of a swimming pool, Los Angeles. It's a bigger splash and you see that yellow diving board going into the blue of the swimming pool and then this mad white foam of the splash as someone's just dived out of view. I know, there are just some incredible colours in this space. And dominating the room, yes. I think we can agree. Yeah, leave the hot near side to one side. <laughs> yeah. I know, we're not here to talk about it. We're him. here to talk about Caro, and this is a huge piece, isn't it? It's, what is it, three metres by three metres by six metres? Yeah, I mean, I think or, or possibly 20 feet long if mm. you want to use those sorts of measurements. Mm. But it's a painted steel and aluminium abstract work. Mm. And as you say, the point about it is that it's big. It's big. It's big and immediately has this wonderful presence yeah. commanding this space, mm. but not at all 
in any powerful way that's off-putting. It's no. a friendly sculpture it's that invites you in. It's not a megalith, is it? It's no. not one of these things that just intimidates you. Because I think, I mean, this is this is the interesting thing. We should probably say a bit about Caro, who he is. Yeah. Uh, so very prominent, um, coming through the 50s into the 60s. Uh, trained as an engineer, which I find interesting. He's obviously using these engineering skills in working with steel. And trained with Henry Moore, I believe. Yeah, he worked with Henry Moore mm. in the 50s as an assistant. And what's quite interesting is here, in the next door gallery, they, um, because the way it works at the moment at Tate Britain is that the permanent collection is organised chronologically. Mm. So as you said, we're here looking at work from the 60s. If you go next door, you can see the 50s room, and you can find an earlier piece by Caro that is totally different. Yeah. And it's a woman, it's a small bronze sculpture, and it's a woman lying on her back. And in many ways, she's not traditionally beautiful at all. I mean, it's quite sort of bulgy and yeah. quite sort of And her face ponderous is actually quite distorted. It is. There's a lot of distortion there. But you can see, in a sense, it, it, what it is, is figurative. It's obviously a woman. And that sense of undulating, swelling forms, I think you can also see a relationship to Henry Maud, the dominant artist and sculptor at the time. Definitely in the use of bronze, I think. there's a, a, The way that that sculpture, the reclining woman, appears to me, it looks like a distorted moor. I mean, that's, it, 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 totally. Yeah. And, and, and it, I think what it shows is that you have a young sculptor who's emerging. You know, he'd been at the Royal Academy Schools where he met his uh, wife, this wonderful woman, Sheila Girling, who um, sadly is no longer here either. But she's a painter and she's an important figure in this story. So we'll, we'll come back to her later. But you can see a young artist with the 50s work emerging, finding a voice, but it's someone else's ultimately. Mm. And what you find here in the 60s room, in keeping with this spirit that you see on, in terms of lots of the paintings on the walls as well, is something that's breaking with that tradition and doing something utterly new. I mean, it's probably, should we, I mean, we yes, should describe it a bit, we should right? describe it, yes. So, um, so we've given the dimensions, and we've said it's aluminium, painted mm. bright red. I think that's the thing that's really striking, isn't it? His use of colour here. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, it's got... The parts, beams that look like they're suspended, hanging in air. But I think the, the point is, like we were saying, it's not an overbearing um, monolith of an object. It, it's got spaces through it, and you're supposed to move around it, aren't you? And experience it from different angles. You, you, you kind of have to yeah. in order to understand it, because what he's working with are um, bits of aluminium and bits of steel. And the bits of steel are basically girders. So it's full on industrial offcuts, which he's cut up. And they're straight and angular and geometric, and they provide the structure of the piece. So you have this very long horizontal shaft that kind of is almost like the spine that goes right along. And then off that, he's created um, other forms, uh, sort of panels, planes, if you like, rectangles of metal. There's one prominent one that stands up at the back um, at one end. And then at the other end, you have um, a couple of pieces of metal that form a cross-like shape. Yes. The, one, the, the big sort of square recta well, rectangle at one end, I've heard some people describe it as a blackboard. I mean, I, I sometimes often think of, this feels like a ship somehow to me. It does it's feel the like sail. a ship. Yeah, I, I, I see that. I also see it as a an artist's uh, canvas. Yes, that's really lovely. I'm sure that that must be there. Yeah. But there, there, are, there are lots of shapes, but I think that's the point. And, and yeah, for the listeners to this podcast, we are looking at something now that is truly modern and pushing against the boundaries of what we think of as art because it is non-figurative, non-narrative. And actually, there is not one solution to this. You're supposed to see 
yeah, all sorts of alternatives in this. I'm not sure how much he was interested in imposing particular narratives or literal meaning because he's working with abstraction and often the analogy he used, which I think is useful when you're thinking about Caro's really um, beautiful, lyrical, graceful, painted metal works of the 60s, of which this is a, a classic example, he talked about music. Mm. And he talked about the idea of the structures of music being a good analogue for um, how his sculptures work. So you have particular rhythms in it, different passages which may echo one another, sort of reprise motifs. And it's that sense of a rippling, kind of almost pulsating rhythm that he's imbued to this whole thing. And part of the way he does it, I think, which is interesting looking at here, is, you know, we've been talking about those angular, geometric, um, the, the, the girders that anchor the form, that provide um, strong verticals at either end, and then a, a horizontal that's almost 20 feet long that um, connects them both. But you have these other pieces of metal, which are almost like, um, I don't know, fronds of seaweed swaying underwater, or they, they have a plant-like growth. They're which fluid, aren't they? They are yeah. totally fluid and spring up. Yeah. I find them really... Um, those bits, really beautiful sort of accents, if you like. And they're almost like grace notes, again, to pursue that musical analogy. Yeah, and I, I mean, I'm always struck as well by, by the flatness of these sections at the bottom. Uh, there, is, um, th there are all these, these verticals and the very strong horizontals. But like you say, those, those front sections in, towards the, the end that, where you've got these cross beams, they really make this something else. They give it uh, an almost um, gravity-defying element, don't they? They give it a lift. Yeah. You're absolutely right. It has uh, an upwards-ascending quality. And part of... I mean, OK... To think about Caro, one of the, if you look in any art history textbook, the thing that he's known for was he took sculpture off the plinth. That's, That's what people it. say. Yeah, yeah. So democratizing. You, you demo exactly, yeah. and it's part of that spirit of the 60s that's going on. Now, if you look here, there is no plinth at all. There's a lot of metal, and if you had to kind of start moving it around and pick it up um, and unbolt it, it would be phenomenally heavy. But there is no feeling here of weight. Instead, you just have weightlessness and lift. And those flat forms you're talking about, there's a couple of them which are about, I don't know, a quarter of the way up the height of the sculpture, which sort of almost levitate in, in thin air. And they feel like um, they could be planes that you could put something else onto. But the fact is, they're not on the ground. Mm. You know, this is a sculpture that is directly, in some cases, very thin struts and supports yeah. are the only things that are anchoring it to the ground. So it has this buoyant quality. Um, which is part of the reason it's so beguiling and, and also involves you, I think. Absolutely. Uh, you can see <coughs> under it, you can see through it, round it. And, and again, that's why it's so great that you know, we're battling the noise of the Tate to actually see this. Um, and should we move around yeah, a let's, bit? Yeah, let's do that. Um, so we've got, yeah, I mean, as you, see, as you say, it's, it's virtually, <laughs> there's, there's very few points at which it's making contact with the ground. All this, this heavy steel is supported on these very, very spindly legs at this end. And then, obviously, in the centre, you've got something... I mean, that looks very industrial, doesn't it? The, I think they're the known as I-beams, because I you can yeah. see the sort of shape of the eye, the way that they've been severed off. Um, but that, I think, is the, the great strength of the sculpture, is that you have to imagine the, a lot of graft went into creating this. Um, you know, cutting, 
uh, I don't, not sure if there is any, yeah, some welding, um, mm. bolting together, I think chiefly bolting together here. Um, but he also taught himself how to cut metal with, uh, you know, and, and that's a big industrial, very sort of male macho process. <laughs> but what you end up with is something that feels um, uh, graceful and nimble and lithe. And I mean, this idea of walking around it, I, I was reading before, you know, meeting up with you today, there's another artist from the same period, American artist called Frank Stella, who was really big and still is, still alive. Um, he loves this piece mm. and he talks about coming in here and that, you know, it demands that you walk around it mm. because, you know, a lot of sculpture you just see from one point of view, traditionally, mm. and even if you think of his, that lumpy woman, the bronze next door, you can get a real sense of what that's all about from one particular view. But this you can't at all and it, it's very deliberate that you're supposed to move around so that it will change and be fluid and fluctuate as you're looking at it. Mm. And the weird thing about that is to think about where he made it because he was living in Hampstead mm. and he had his studio in a garage next door it wasn't a very big space and he started constructing this quite soon after he'd made the break with the, the figurative bronze work before and had moved into this painted abstract work um, and he was creating it in the garage and it became too big <laughs> And it outgrew the space. He and talks about it flowing out. out of the garage into the gallery, doesn't he? Actually, it, it, it flowed into out. the garden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Into the garden, but then at yeah. the, into the, into and, and now here. And you, you sort of imagine him actually right up close, not being able to get any Ooh. dominant perspective from a view to kind of say, ah, that's the way it's working. And that immersion is then what we have with it, I think, as well. Don't you find? Oh, I mean, completely. And I think I think this is why I like Caro. I mean, I love Hepworth, I love Moore, I love the big names. But you're right, you know, there is definitely a sense with those, those sculptors that, that there is a viewpoint, there is a place from which you should stand and look at it. I can't see that here. And in fact, the whole thing changes wherever you stand. You get a completely different experience. I mean, I'm enjoying just seeing this, this panel. The canvas. The canvas at this end um, from this side, because when you look at it from, um, not from behind, but from in front, you still get the bolts coming through, breaking up that smooth surface with, with something quite, quite decorative, quite attractive. And um, I think what's, what's wonderful about Caro's work is he wants to um, push against the expectations of what art should do so it doesn't tell you what you're supposed to think or feel you bring yourself to this work don't you and you're into it you can move right into it into the sections of it yeah and I think it's about um, a series of sculptural thoughts propositions that unfold in space but also then unfold in time because you have to move around to have a look I mean if we go we, can yeah, we go to the other let's end go up to the other end yeah so we're moving up towards the this is the, the cross, cross, yeah, the cross yeah. form and whoops, let's go underneath that. I mean, you do get here, in a way, a more sort of orthodox view where um, that, what you're calling the canvas, which I think is a lovely analogy, but the sort of blackboardy, the, the flat form at the back, does provide a flat anchoring background, if you like, and everything else is projecting out from that, and you can see. But, you know, if you come here, you have no sense whatsoever of the great length of the sculpture. No, I love it from this view. I love it looking down at it. It really shrinks it. Uh, it looks much more intimate, much, and that fluidity of the... I've just noticed that curving piece. We've talked about the two front sections that's hovering on the, the central long beam, but I've just noticed the other one that curves from the floor around. And what's also beautiful, um, the, the shadows it throws. Yes. You know, this is about uh, manipulating viewpoints and light as well, in a way. Yeah. Um, it, it's making I, some I, I think, shapes. I mean, for, for me, whenever I think about Caro, the reason I love him so much as an artist, and I think you have it here, 
is you have tremendous sort of heft and brawn and solidity. And you have that here in those strong blocks of the I-beams and, and, the, and the angularity of the structure, underlying structure of the sculpture. But you also have, in the 60s work, a real sense of the uplift you talked about, the more graceful notes, which are almost poetic and, and feel lyrical. And then there's that poetry of the title, Early One Morning. Is this, you know, is that form at the end that you're... I mean, it's fascinating you call it a canvas, partly because he's in dialogue the whole time with painting. Throughout his career, yeah. he's thinking about paintings as a sculptor. He did that self-consciously. His wife, Sheila, um, was a very gifted painter, and she worked near him in their studio in Camden, um, which is where he was based from the late 60s until the end of his life, so actually after this sculpture was made. But they had such a close relationship. And the amazing thing is, a story you've probably heard, but Sheila chose the colours yes, after the sculptures. Yes, I, I have heard this. So she suggested he take the steel and paint it this, this glorious red. Well, he, he painted it green. And so in the first incarnation, early one morning, existed in the garden in Hampstead, and it was green. And, I can um, kind of see that working. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the, that would bring out the fluidity of it, but this is more bold and startling well, in red, she, isn't it? He always credited her as being the, as she was, I mean, she was the painter, and as being the genius colourist, this gifted colourist who understood colour. And she looked at it and said, you know, essentially... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Love the sculpture, but the color's totally wrong. <laughs> I mean, green is just disastrous. Yeah. <laughs> this thing you've you been working on. Red. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's completely wrong until I make it right. Yeah. Oh, and and, and he, he took it. He was like, yeah, you know what? You're right. <laughs> I think uh, the red, though, gives it a drama. And actually, I think if it, if it had remained green, in a way, I think you'd impose too many alternative narratives on it. It would be that sense of, you know, fronds. We've talked about fronds. And um, and actually, I think the fact it's it's... The red is such a, a very, very bright red. But then he also colours his sculptures yellow, and, and the colour is important, isn't it? Hugely important. He, he wanted art, and this was part of the great insight and radical break. He wanted his art in the 60s to not feel like 
art, in inverted commas, if you like, to not be some high-minded object that was a luxurious thing. Oh, yes, it's a bronze, therefore you know it's art as soon as you look at it and almost overlook it. Here, this is, in one sense, far more matter-of-fact. It's an object that's in our space, on the ground, not elevated on a plinth, and given this colour, which doesn't have any literal meaning, mm. although I suppose it's tempting here, if you're thinking about that poetic title early one morning, and you're thinking about your, your canvas blackboardy form, it's almost like it could be the sun Absolutely. rising. Absolutely, I was thinking about that the red. sunrise coming Particularly up. Particularly from this angle, right? Yes, completely from this angle. And those fronds almost then become like rays yeah. of light. Yeah. And, I mean, this idea of the horizon, all, all these... Yeah, from this angle, it really does make me think of a sunrise, definitely. Um, I think if it wasn't red, if it was left just industrial steel, that's another issue, isn't it? Because what, what I think he's, he's very good at doing is taking all sorts of day-to-day -day bits of clutter. You know, I was reading about his studio in Camden and how there were sort of bits of old beds and frames and, and it was like a scrapyard but turning them from scrap and then creating something that is it's very much an artistic finished work well and in this case the color gives it that unity so you have disparate forms mm -hmm. which totally cohere because they're given the balance and rhythm that he was his instinct mm -hmm. and which he has given but the paint only enhances that mm -hmm. it gives it one lick of paint that makes it a unitary object it's it's fascinating that thing about the the scrap because um, it's a story that I've sort of mentioned before, but one of the earliest interviews I ever did for The Telegraph was going to Camden to meet Sir Anthony Caro. Wow, okay. And, um, I did not know that. No, right, well, there you go. The it, was, it, was, it was great. And uh, he, was, he's always very, he was always very generous with younger people. And um, so he took time. It was a wonderful interview. But I remember arriving, and here you had this kind of quite corporate-looking cars, like because this was in a sort of industrial place where there were offices elsewhere and other buildings. And you had all these saloon cars that looked like sort of boring middle management, you know, parked there. And then you had the car, the parking space that was reserved for Sir Anthony Carr, a little sign, and it was full of all that stuff, ah. just like springs and coils and beds and bits of old metal from scrapyards. It was mad, like this strange kind of junk poetry. And it's all the raw materials that then, yes, he and his assistants, including um, his studio director, Pat Cunningham, who's still very much around and, and uh, is a wonderful man, knew Tony phenomenally well over many years. And they would work together to create these works of just wonderful... I, I still come back to that word of poetry, I think. Yeah. I am so delighted to hear that you did, he didn't have some sort of amazing old Jaguar part. No, 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 no. Just, just a lot of, of old scrap, crap, basically. <laughs> but, like, sorry, scrap. Uh, yeah. Scrap. Which, um, which, <laughs> which becomes could beautiful become sculptures. But, but Let's you, move around yeah. this way because I, wanted, I want to look at it from here because I think we were talking about this, the different um, materials he's chosen. Actually, from here, we're standing now over by the, the section we're calling the fronds between the cross um shape and fronts and actually it's at this point that I can see the skills that have gone into selecting the scrap because it's they're all different shapes you've got with that's the eye beam there that's touching the floor but you've got sort of this long um, square uh, section in the middle but these are all circular these are round aren't they I'd say you probably got three basic elements of different sizes one is um, a sort of that angular I-beam industrial metal heavy girder. Mm. Another is just sort of like flat sheet metal which are these squares and rectangles that create these planes and then the third is he's got these sort of tube like forms. Mm. Um, the fronds as we talk about are basically three pieces of metal mm. which interact and then the 
the, the, the vertical part of the cross, if you like, is another tube. It's a thicker tube. And of course, a cross makes it sound rigid and linear. This one isn't at all because um, that tube, as it moves up, it, it sways to the left and then curves back up and becomes sort of upright. And this is it, this delicacy. I, I love the, the analogies with poetry, with music, but also that contrast of the brute nature of welding metal, you yeah. know, taking these heavy things, welding them together, he, bolting he, them together, I think, and this delicacy. Yeah. Well, he, I think chiefly here, I mean, we should check this, but I think here it's all bolted. Um, although there may that be some looks like it could be welded been, there. Yeah. I think that's welded on the section the, or below the, the tubes. Thing that's yeah. it. But the, the, the kind of point that you're making, which I think is absolutely right, is that all of those bolts are there. He hasn't tried to hide mm. them at all. There's no masking of the joins and the fissures. Instead, he's foregrounding it almost yeah. because it's that sort of material presence. It's, it's being honest. It's being direct. It's about directness, this sculpture, not being something that if you walk in a gallery, you look at and go, oh, that's fine art. It's not for me. This is supposed to be somehow of our worlds and our experience and something that we can relate to immediately. And I think, I think we can. I mean, even whilst we're standing here, you can see people stop and linger and so look at this. So many people have come and looked at it while we've been here. And uh, we made the point earlier about coming off the plinth but that is a big point and I think for for lovers of art there does seem to be something of a a cutting point around the the 60s particularly where it stops looking like recognizable artworks and starts to become something that is a mental exercise a challenge but it is very important and and, you know we mentioned the democratizing of art all of these pieces Caro and the things surrounding us the Hockney they're supposed to be pulling um, the fathers off the pedestals a bit, aren't they? And, and really shaking up art as you know it. Well, I mean, you know, since we have time and we're here in the gallery, I mean, as we're talking, we're looking over another work on the opposite wall from the Hockney, which is by a wonderful artist who I think people don't really remember so well now. But he's called British artist Richard Smith. No longer here. Um, hugely successful back in the day. In America as well in the 60s. Represented Britain at the Venice Biennale. And this piece here is, a, is you'd call it a painting. It's called Piano. Um, and it's somewhere in between abstract art and pop art. Because there are actually, uh, you can see what could be like piano keys. But really it's a cigarette packet. And you can see the tops of cigarettes in these round forms at the background. Um, and there's the packet itself. But the point about it for the purposes of you know, podcast is that it's a shaped canvas that bulges off the wall and hits the floor. Absolutely. So it's not just a painting and it's not quite sculpture. It's this weird hybrid in between. But isn't that exciting? Absolutely. You know, breaking down categories, if you like. Taking, yeah, destroying the canvases of old in a way, you know, exploding them out. Yeah, it's got um, a huge vitality. Yeah. All yeah. of the work here, I think, does. Absolutely, and I think it's, it's um, you know, so far on the podcast we've talked about mosaics and painting, but things like this, you know, these again, these are challenges for the art historian to understand, but also to understand them in their context and the time that they're being made. And this for me is so 1960s. It's, yeah. it's all about this idea of, uh, I mean, again, I think that the simplicity of it and the colours and the lines kind of reminds me of 60s fashion, actually. You, you, you know, you're totally right. And, and there was clearly something in the air in the 60s. <laughs> or the water. Which, but you know, what, you know what the answer to that actually could be? I mean, this is 62, right? Yeah. So it's still quite early. 
you know, people who work in fashion, designers, they're people who are interested in visual culture. And they're also quite clever and sophisticated. And they see what these artists are doing. And a channel, I mean, the, you know, arguably the artists are also channeling something indefinable in the zeitgeist. But the work that they're making has a huge influence mm. on, on everyday popular culture. And it becomes reciprocal. Lots of the pop artists are taking elements of popular culture and bringing them into their work. And likewise, people like graphic designers and um, fashion designers are looking at visual art and taking stuff from them yeah and and i think it brings the time to life and understanding the time helps bring this to life you know this couldn't have been made at any other time it is off the 60s and what what, let me ask you because you i mean obviously your your background i suppose is as a medievalist now this is wildly different from that you say that well yeah we've we've (laughs) had this conversation before though alistair because i think medievalists are naturally drawn to the modern and the contemporary rather than 17th, 18th, 19th century fine art because medievalists were using all sorts of mediums. They were using metal. They were in forges. They were cutting gems and jewels and and making objects that worked, um, that worked hard and weren't just art for art's sake. And so I think as a medievalist, I totally relate to this. I love it. I, I love the physicality of how it was made and the physicality of how you have to interact with it. Um, I think, I wonder, I always think about artworks out of the gallery setting. How would this appear if it was in his garden? And and I think the beauty of it is it still works. It's obviously a statement piece. It is a work of art, um, despite the fact that actually it's made up of bits of scrap, as we've said. Yeah, Yeah, so, I mean, the interesting thing looking at Early One Morning is that um, it's typical of the way his work goes in the 60s. You have the delicacy, the refinement to the sculpture, you know, that sense of weightlessness, the, the really intense high-keyed colour, um, welded metal, bolted metal. He makes a load of sculptures in this vein, make him tremendously successful. They're wonderful works of art. They still feel lyrical and beautiful. Um, but he starts to resist it at a certain mm. point. Round about 1970, he changes because he didn't want to become mannered and repetitive. And his work suddenly goes back to some of his very earliest abstract sculptures, which have this blunt, brute, unpainted force. And you can see even more that materiality you're talking about, the, the way it's been fashioned, mm. is even more visible. And it becomes quite sort of bullish. Um, and he, uh, uh, those works, in a sense, are more challenging, I think, mm. to some modern viewers because they don't have that that sort of burst of colour which draws you in. And also, doesn't he change locations as well? So there's a few of his at Chatsworth, I believe, around the estate, and the idea of putting them in the open air as opposed to encountering them in a, in a white cube. <laughs> yeah, but no, totally. And actually, that was the point I was going to originally make in response to what you were saying, is that um, some of those kind of more rugged, powerful works... They do work outside. And he did also work and create monumental sculptures, more monumental, um, which are very successful. Some of the spindly 60s work, if you do, and even later, if you do show them outside for any reason, then they don't always work brilliantly against the natural landscape around in a funny way. I can imagine that. I yeah. can imagine that, that you need more more depth and substance in a larger state. Something like Chatsworth, those pieces are much chunkier, aren't they? Um, and I think that they work because they're, they're taking on board the architecture and the, the, the natural landscape around. But, but this, is, this is so beautiful and it's actually, I, I find it very delicate. Mm. Um, I mean, what's your lasting feeling when you're with it? I think a sense of um, 
great promise and optimism, mm. to be honest. I feel, you know, if, if you're ever feeling um, down, this is the tonic to completely pep you up because it's partly the clue given by the title, which is suggestive. It's not inviting a literal reading of Here is the Sun Rising, but it gives that feeling of promise, as I say. What a beautiful day lies ahead, potentially. And I think that's completely... Um, a part of that 60s moment of excitement and sort of saying, you know, the old world, we can leave it behind, actually. We can leave that sort of grungy, rather dingy 50s world of rationing and austerity and come into something that's way more celebratory and has a slightly pop feel and is is beautiful to behold. Mm, well, I <laughs> what, have what do you think? Uh, yeah, I have to agree. I think it's... Um, I find it very uplifting, I I am always struck by how much I how much symbolism I put into things. Yeah. So I'm very much struck by the big bendy cross. <laughs> you know, yeah, I could I could cross. I could definitely wax on about changing attitudes towards religion in the 60s. <laughs> and I'm, I, I but I it tells me a lot about myself, how I feel around it, how I want to read it, how I want to interpret it. But and then I get to a point where mm. I'm frustrated and actually all I want to do is enjoy it and yeah. experience the colour and the shapes. And I think your, your painting thing is really interesting to me because, like I say, he did look at painting a lot, not least because of his wife, um, and that was a source of inspiration to him in his sculpture. And actually, if you pursue that metaphor, and it's a bit of a flight of fancy, this, I don't think he ever talked about it. Um, he would have completely shot me down if I'd ever mentioned it to him um, when I interviewed him. Um, but you have, with that cross, a sense of religious art. Also, from the other angle, this, there is a sense of landscape to it with those natural forms which are swaying about in the breeze. It's like it has these different artistic genres sort of encoded. I totally, it. totally agree. When we stood at the other end and the cross shape and the fronds were imposed upon what I'm calling the canvas, it really reminded me of uh, you know, those, those religious works of German uh, romantics of crosses yeah. in the landscape. And uh, so I think... Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure we're imposing our own meanings onto it. But I, I, I don't I enjoy think it's a piece that. of uh, Christian art, that's for sure. But but no, totally, it does. It invites it. And it that's, invites that's, it. That's the point, isn't it? That it is. This is a piece of art as uh, being inclusive mm. and has a, a, a demo- democratic feel to it. Definitely. Well, we could talk about this endlessly. <laughs> what an absolute pleasure, and what a pleasure as well to be here with you with the artwork, really getting to experience it. I hope that our enthusiasm has come through yes. via the microphone. Um, um, but if you are, ever find yourself in London, do come to the Tate. This is just one of many, many, many extraordinary things that you can see here. Uh, if you have enjoyed this podcast, do subscribe. Uh, you can get it via iTunes or subscribe to, uh, through the History Hit uh, website. It's at historyhit.com slash artdetective. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm Dr. Yanina Ramirez. And Alistair, it has been a pleasure. Nina, dear. thank you for asking me to do this. And, and I'm so glad that we could be here with the sculpture because this artwork, of all the artworks in this room, definitely, in reproduction, I hope you've got lots of images that people can see as we're doing the podcast, you know, because you need to be here to experience it and walk around it. Yeah. So thank you. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.